is Zip Rap on VFBS with Kate Jabbar. This week, Ratko Mladic, Europe's most wanted war crime suspect, arrested. The Srebrenica massacre, 7,000 or so murdered. This man was in charge. It's about time we've got him. Thank goodness he's been arrested. And Britain's essential relationship with America. Essential to our security, essential for our prosperity. It's built on shared ideals and shared values. BFBS. Headlines. Europe's most wanted war crime suspect Ratko Mladic has been arrested in Serbia. The former Bosnian Serb army commander is now being extradited to The Hague, where he's wanted by the UN War Crimes Tribunal for genocide during the Bosnian War. The Royal College of Nursing says a report into standards of care at hospitals in England is absolutely shocking. The Care Quality Commission says up to 20% of hospitals may be failing to provide the right care. New figures show alcohol-related hospital admissions in England are at a record high. In the year to April last year, more than a million people were admitted because of alcohol abuse. The Ministry of Defence says no final decision has been made on cutting some extra payments to parachute-trained military personnel. It's thought some members of the parachute regiment and others could lose the £5 a day extra payment. And the three flying squadrons at RAF Kinloss have been officially disbanded in a ceremony attended by the Duke of Edinburgh. It's happening at the station after the decision to end squadron operations under the defence cuts. Europe's most wanted man is in custody today. Ratko Mladic, the former Bosnian Serb military commander, wanted by the UN War Crimes Tribunal for genocide. Together with Radovan Karadic, he came to symbolise Serbia's campaign of ethnic cleansing, in which thousands of Croats and Muslims died. Serbia's president, Bos- Boris Tadic, announced that after years of pressure, Mladic had finally been captured. Today we arrested Ratko Mladic. Today we closed one chapter chapter of our recent history that will bring us one step closer to full reconciliation in the region. Thousands of British troops were sent to Bosnia over a 15-year period as part of a UN peacekeeping force. Colonel Bob Stewart is a former UN commander there. Some memories may have, have, have gone, but those people that were affected, their memories haven't gone. The Srebrenica massacre two years after I left Bosnia in July 1995, when at least 7,000 men and boys were taken away. Mladic having said they'd be okay and looked after, and then 7,000 or so, we don't know quite, were murdered in the woods around Srebrenica. This man was in charge. It's about time we've got him. Thank goodness he's been arrested. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me in the studio. Hello, Christopher. A reminders of the allegations facing Ratko Mladic. Well, basically what um, Bob Stewart was saying there, 7,500, some say as many as 8,000 people uh, were killed and they were assassinated, uh, executed, whichever term you like to put it. But basically, it was a war crime, and they've been looking for him ever since. Haven't got him. Milosevic, you remember, President Milosevic, they got. Then in 2008, they got Karadzic, and Karadzic was the the political head of all this. And the suggestion was from some of uh, uh, Rako Milosevic's people... General Mladic's people, was that he was only carrying out orders and Karadzic's orders. And so it, it brings together the, the, the trio, and that closes 
one part of the story, but there's more to be told. Just to remind people to take us back, that, that crime in Srebrenica, it was the worst war crime since the Second World War, wasn't it? It was the worst war crime uh, since the Second World War, if you're doing it on scale, on, 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 on numbers. It was, at the time, expected. If you remember, this was a most terrible internecine uh, warfare in the whole region. And nobody suspected that it wouldn't happen or something, perhaps not on that scale. But there was no question the Bosnian Serbs were not going to just sit back. It was, it was confrontation. And that's one of the tragedies of what happened at Srebrenica. One of the tragedies. Young men and so boys many, just simply taken away Well, and yes, but also, I mean, Bob Stewart said, you know, just after his lot left, a lot of people, and the Dutch have been included in this, who are supposed to be peacekeepers, people said it could have been prevented and we turned our backs on it. Yes, uh, anyone who watched the news at the time can remember those horrible pictures. Um, uh, Magic will presumably stand trial at the War Crimes Tribunal. Um, that process is going to take years, isn't it? Well, it might not take as long. Um, I mean, partly because the, the War tr- Crimes Tribunal has limited a limited period in which, which, which it can act. Um, it's also the difficulty of the evidence thing. It's not as if you have loads of witnesses say, yes, um, I heard Karadzic give him orders. And it's combined with the Karadzic hearing as well. And also that you have, for example, Mladic will say, I want to see the evidence, I want to see the documentation, and this can be strung up. What is most interesting is why he's been caught now. He's and what's run the answer of, to that? He's run out of time, basically. He's run out of people who would protect him. So it's a good news day in the sense that, uh, really, if you've done these... Well, if you're wanted on this kind of scale, sooner or later, you're going to be got. There's a, uh, a, a former Nazi sentry, that's all, at a concentration camp at the moment, being convicted. And there was the beginning of the whole idea that doesn't matter how far your so-called or your alleged war crime goes back, there will be those who will continue... To hunt down, and that's the story of being the story of the Middle East in more recent times, and it's certainly the time of Maladic now. It's just a reminder you do the bad thing, you're going to be caught eventually, and you'll have to pay for it in theory. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Um, it is, according to the leaders of Britain and the United States, the essential relationship. This week's state visit by President Obama was all about cementing the ties between the two nations and sending a strong signal to the rest of the world on the big challenges we both face. At a state banquet at Buckingham Palace, the President paid tribute to Britain's steadfast support for America. You have been our closest partner in the struggle to protect our people from terrorism attacks and violent extremism around the world, despite very heavy sacrifices here. And allow me to pay tribute to the contributions of your military forces, which have stood shoulder to shoulder with us for decades. And as we confront the challenges of the 21st century, together, we can have confidence in the partnership that our two countries share. And after talks at Downing Street with David Cameron, the two men set out their views on Afghanistan, global security, the Arab Spring and that relationship. It is a living, working partnership. It is essential to our security and it's essential for our prosperity. The relationship between our two countries is one that's not just based on warm sentiment. It's built on shared ideals and shared values. As David said, it is a special relationship and an essential relationship. We can defeat al-Qaeda, and the events of recent months give us an opportunity to turn the tide on their terror 
once and for all. This is a vital year in Afghanistan. British and American forces are fighting side by side in Helmand, right at the heart of this operation. We've broken the momentum of the insurgency, and even in the Taliban's heartland in Kandahar and central Helmand, they are on the back foot. Our nations have a long-term interest in ensuring that Afghanistan never again becomes a launching pad for attacks against our people. If global politics is about spreading peace and prosperity, then this is a once-in-a-generation moment to grab hold of. We are both committed to doing everything that we can to support peoples who reach for democracy and leaders who implement democratic reform. The centrepiece of the visit was a speech at Westminster Hall in which the president said America and Europe must show leadership at a time of enormous global change. So what does this week's visit mean for the relationship between Britain and America? On the line is foreign affairs analyst John Dickey, who's an expert on transatlantic ties. Uh, John Dickey, thanks for your time today. For decades, it's been a special relationship. Now it's essential. What's the difference then? Well, frankly, uh, the special relationship as a term, which dates back, of course, to the speech by Winston Churchill at uh, Fulton, Missouri in March 1946 when the Iron Curtain was coming down and this was the way of uh, stabilizing uh, the West to meet the challenge of communism. But it's frankly um, passed its sell-by date and we now have, as you said, uh, an essential relationship. Uh, the diplomatic dictionary is being changed. It's an interesting transition. When you listen to those speeches, um, were the words uttered by Obama and Cameron actually any different from those from previous presidents and prime ministers? No, it's always been the habit of an American president to um, arrange a feel-good factor for his visitor from the United Kingdom. And although uh, diplomats have privately avoided using it, in fact, Ray Seitz, when he was American ambassador here in London, uh, took a vow on his first day never to use the phrase. But it has been a way for politicians to um, butter each other up. Uh, Christopher, the leaders announced enhanced security cooperation. You would have thought they'd be cooperating pretty closely already. They are on many things, and the most important things, for example, that we don't normally hear about or talk about is intelligence gathering, uh, for example. And the American CIA have somebody who's on our Joint Intelligence Committee and so that becomes very, very important. What happens, though, when you get into something like Libya, uh, the Liberian operation? Uh, and that was very clear from this meeting between uh, Mr. Cameron and uh, Mr. Obama, that the British still have a different view of what we should be doing in Libya. And um, where, as Cameron was saying, you know, we've still got to get Gaddafi... Uh, he, was, he uh, Obama, was sort of stepping back and saying, well, you know, we could have peace talks without Gaddafi having gone. And this defines, I think, what... I'm not sure... So a, a muddled relationship on, on well, some fronts. Well, it's, it's, it's pretty clear. I mean, I remember John, John Dickey uh, did something on this and called it a, spe a book called A spe Special No More. And I think that's right. It is not special in the sense that it automatically comes to pass, that we do everything the Americans do and the Americans will want to do everything we will do. You've got to be pragmatic. If it wins elections in America, it'll be done. If it doesn't win elections in this place, it won't be done. And that is the difference. Well, this week, a former advisor to Obama's predecessor, George W. Bush, warned Britain's defence cuts will harm the UK's global influence, a sentiment that's also been heard at the Pentagon. And former First Sea Lord Sir Jonathan Band told MPs on the Commons Defence Committee, there's no doubt our influence will fade as spending cuts hamper our ability to act independently. If it was meant to say that by failing to invest in parts of defence for a period, 
you will do no harm to your influence, then that is rubbish. If you deliberately spend less on defence, apart from potentially jeopardising some areas of capability, you will be less effective for a period, and part of that is in the influence game. Because if you, don't, if you no longer show up at the defence party with a capability, why should your allies consult you as much? I mean, it's, it's, it's clear. Well, the defence analyst Paul Beaver is on the line from Westminster. Paul Beaver, good to hear you today. Is Jonathan Band right about our fading influence? I, I sat there and listened to um, Sir Jonathan um, at that uh, House of Commons Select Committee meeting, um, and I have to say that what you don't see on radio are the nodding members of Parliament um, from all sides, um, and uh, whether that's uh, from a Democratic Ulster Unionist or from Labour or Conservative, they were all nodding in agreement. And I think there is a risk. It hasn't affected the United Kingdom yet because a lot of the cuts that are in the SDSR have yet to come to fruition. But the very first and, and most serious one is probably carrier air and uh, the deletion of HMS Art Royal and, and the Harriers. And also the one that's not spoken about quite so much is the maritime uh, patrol capability. So our allies in Norway, for example, um, are now very hard pushed to maintain a submarine watch um, in uh, across the what's the, the called the Faroes, Iceland, Greenland gap. So we're starting to lose that. So the Norwegians and our and our other North Atlantic allies are, are going. Well, hang on a minute. Where do the Brits stand on this? And that, I think, is a major problem for us. That will not show for a couple of years, but I think then it will. Uh, John Dickey on the presidential visit, when Obama is back in the White House, how much thought do you think he's really going to give to Britain? Oh, I think it's a continuing uh, partnership in the sense of us being pragmatic, uh, as Christopher Lee was saying. I mean, the CIA station chief sits in every Thursday morning with the British intelligence uh, experts, and that's something that the French don't get into, or the Germans. And there will be other occasions when uh, the uh, fight against terrorism requires a British input uh, from intelligence and from other practical ways. All right, John Dickey, thanks for your time today. Still to come this week, the end of an era at RAF Kinloss. It is a significant day because um, you can't necessarily detach the flying from Kinloss and not perhaps believe that a part of Kinloss has died. One of the more bizarre sights of the state visit was the President and Prime Minister flipping burgers in the garden at Number 10. Their wives hosted a barbecue for American and British military personnel. It was a great reminder of the incredible debt that we owe all of them and their families for their service, for their sacrifice, for all they do to keep us safe. We launched a joint initiative to exchange the best ideas and practices when it comes to supporting our veterans and our military families. That support is one of the six areas of enhanced cooperation announced during the visit. It comes as new MOD figures show nearly 4,000 service personnel were diagnosed with mental health problems last year, with those who've served in Afghanistan far more, far more likely to suffer depression or post-traumatic stress disorder. Often these problems can take years to appear. Hugh Forsyth was a bomb disposal expert with the Royal Engineers for 12 years. In 1988, he saw six of his friends blown up on a tour of Northern Ireland. Eight years later, he was threatened at gunpoint in Bosnia. I had to turn my back on him and walk back to the vehicle. And it was on the way back to the vehicle. Um, I'd already started crying at that point. Uh, the driver, who was only a young lad, 
saw the panic in my face and he started panicking. I was a quivering wreck, I could hardly climb into the vehicle. Because, you know, I expected my face to explode and I was expecting to be shot. So could we learn from the US where the Wounded Warrior Programme helps soldiers with physical or psychological injuries? Well, on the line from Washington, D.C., is Michael Evans, who's the Times' Pentagon correspondent. Thanks for your time today, Michael. Uh, the programme started after the invasion of Iraq. How does it work exactly? Um, the, the most important thing is that they, they wanted to make sure that they had a programme that was uh, lifelong, so it wasn't just a question of giving a particular soldier treatment that would help him over a period of six, nine months, 12 months of his treatment, and then that would be it. Uh, but they needed to follow it up and have, literally for the rest of his life, have an availability for him to come back for help, for his family to be consulted, and uh, really it's a sort of lifelong project. It had its ups and downs to start with, uh, but I think it's a system that now works very, very well, both the U.S. Army and the Marine Corps have a very, very good system, which they call uh, Wounded Warrior Regiments, which you literally join this regiment and you're looked after for the rest of your days. Uh, Christopher, the MOD says the latest rise is partly because personnel are more willing to ask for help with mental health problems, but in the past it wasn't very well handled, was it? No, it wasn't handled that well. There was also something else that's going on in the United Kingdom. In the United Kingdom, we tend to think, or at the moment anyway, um, was it uh, as a result of being in Iraq, was it as a result of being in Afghanistan? A lot of these cases were 20 years old, and they didn't come up... 20 years and then you sort of pinpoint and some guy goes to the GP and he's got a problem and the GP doesn't say well were you in the army is that is that part of the problem so it was a question of identifying and then not only identifying for somebody to actually write a chitty and say this is uh, quite a serious case but by then it's out into the National Health Service to resolve and what the uh, the wounded warrior program and others like them in the United States has recognized that after service, this is a continued process. This is something you've, you, your obligation to the forces in general. It's only recently that I think the British forces have come to realise, or the MOD has come to realise, that they have an obligation, and, and it's come to the attention. It's all right saying, for example, the, uh, the uh, British Legion say, well, in 24 hours, somebody rings, we'll have somebody around there in a couple of hours' time. You know, if you're on the streets of London, and there are 900 ex-servicemen on the streets of London at the moment, uh, uh, very few have got mobiles are going to ring the British Legion. Michael Evans, in America, support for the military is far more public. Uh, do you think there are wider lessons to be learned here in Britain about that? I think this is a cultural thing. I mean, I think the, the um, contact between the public and the military is much, much closer in this country. Uh, in Washington, for example, you'll see uh, uniformed uh, officers and uh, soldiers, Marines, Navy, uh, walking around the streets on the metro, uh, there's a much closer um, uh, union, should we say, between between the military and and, uh, and the public. And I think that's something which uh, is, is such a cultural thing. I don't think, don't think it's something you can literally grow in in the UK like like it has, like it is here. Um, so I think that's one reason. The the families are very 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 the communities and the families are very very close in this country, and the, a lot of the uh, soldiers and Marines come from particular areas of of this country, and there the uh, the sort of uh, uh, the, the union between the, the community and the soldiers is fantastically close. I don't think that's quite the same in in UK. All right, Michael Evans from the Times. Thanks for your time today. 
FBS SIP Rep. The NATO bombing campaign in Libya has been stepped up this week as military experts warn of the risk of strategic failure unless there's a change in tactics. While Tripoli's been rocked by heavy explosions in recent days, the stalemate remains. And former head of the army, Lord Dannett, also sees parallels with events in Iraq eight years ago. The very naive hope that by a lightning campaign into Iraq would put the hands of the levers of government into other hands and all would be well. That didn't happen. And there are shadows of this happening again. So we are where we are now. And I think there is a growing realisation that when Gaddafi goes, and he will go, there will be a wider responsibility on those beyond Libya to help the Libyan opposition get their country up and running. But the Prime Minister and President Obama insist their resolve hasn't weakened. We restate our position once more. It is impossible to imagine a future for Libya with Gaddafi still in power. He must go. We will continue those operations until Gaddafi's attacks on civilians cease. Time is working against Gaddafi and he must step down from power and leave Libya to the Libyan people. Well, defence analyst Paul Beaver is still with us. Uh, Paul, the criticism seems to be that once again we've launched military action without a clear plan for what will happen afterwards. I think this is um, a, a problem that we have every time we go um, uh, on, on a military ex, uh, expedition, it shouldn't stop us from doing the right thing, but we could easily um, work out what we need to do. We, we, we need to have a time frame. There are lots of reasons for that. Um, uh, the armed forces are very stretched. They're, they're running hot again, uh, to use a, uh, a Danet expression from, uh, from four or five years ago. Um, in terms of, of how we're going to manage this campaign and the Afghanistan campaign at the same time as drawing down as a result of the current planning round, um, when the MOD is looking for 10% um, cost reduction in this current year, uh, when the number of tornado squadrons has been reduced, when um, the number of ships have been reduced in, in, in the Royal Navy, um, and we are tied by having a, U, a very rigid UN Security Council res, uh, resolution that we've been expanding the envelope of um, all the time. So this isn't a good place to be in, but we are where we are. What we have to do now is give some sort of clarity um, as to what the, the war aims are. They seem to change, and they change between countries. NATO is not homogeneous on this, and that's the trouble. In, indeed, because you, on the one hand you have David Cameron saying he wants to turn up the heat on Gaddafi. Barack Obama doesn't seem to want to set timetables. Is military progress in Libya keeping up with the rhetoric, do you think? I think military progress is, is working well. I'm, I shall be very interested to see if the French and the British do deploy their attack helicopters because that's a very precise and surgical way of destroying uh, armoured vehicles and, uh, and ground installations. That would be a ratcheting up um, of the pressure on Gaddafi. But he's one of those people who, who really just doesn't want to go. I mean, you, know, you can't reason with him. He will not, I don't believe, step down as Barack Obama would like uh, him to do. I think he's going to have to be forced from power, either alive or dead. And I'm afraid that is, that is just simply the nature of the person. All right, Paul Beaver, thanks for your time today. Well, it looks like Britain will send Apache attack helicopters to join the offensive in Libya in a move that marks a significant escalation of the conflict. The Apache reached its own milestone this week, 100,000 flying hours. Our reporter, Will Inglis, has been speaking to some of the crews. The Apache is army through and through, but a number of aircraft and crews have spent the last month in the Mediterranean perfecting the ability to launch attacks from HMS Ocean. And, as it happens, 
They're fully specced for war fighting. Colonel Neil Moss is commander of the attack helicopter force. They've had to be marinized specifically for that role. The machine itself is hugely flexible. And as you hinted at then, we bought this for the Cold War, for massed armor over in northern Europe, in the, in the grassy greenlands of Germany and wherever else we were asked to go. We certainly never guessed we'd be using it in the desert. And luckily, because it was designed by Boeing in Mesa, Arizona, it's actually pretty good in the desert. And also, I'd like to say that our crews are hugely flexible, always learning what they can do on this machine. And that's why I'm confident it could literally go anywhere in the world to do what we're asked to do. The Apache force is already stretched, though. I spoke to one pilot just back from his fourth tour of Afghanistan in five years. It's quite a burden, but um, it's something that you, you sort of accept once you're, once you're in doing the job. Um, I am sort of going to be sort of taking up a respite tour, um, or basically getting time off from Afghanistan. Uh, but to be quite honest, after about the time off that you have from there, you probably end up, want to end up going back. Launching Apaches from ships at sea against Libyan ground forces is about more than just fancy flying, though. Sergeant Colin Penny is from 3 Regiment Army Air Corps' workshops. In 2006, we're 9 Regiment Army Air Corps. Uh, uh, known as a, uh, that was the first maritime that we had done it. It's, it is very difficult at sea. Uh, it's a, a lot of new challenges for the lads, but once it's like everything, once you get up and running and you know your procedures, uh, you become slicker and better over time, so I'm sure they're actually pretty slick by now. The Apache fleet is celebrating 100,000 flying hours. Earlier spare shortages are now largely resolved, but another deployment will increase stress on the few especially converted airframes, the six Apache squadrons and their families. Will Inglis reporting. Well, it's a big day at RAF Kinloss. The Duke of Edinburgh has been at the base in Murray as the three flying squadrons based there are disbanded. The airfield at Kinloss will cease to operate at the end of July. Already personnel have said goodbye to the nearby town of Forres. BFBS's James Hurst has spent the week there. The servicemen and women of Kinloss got a rapturous reception in the neighbouring town of Forres a couple of days ago when they paraded the squadron standards there for the final time. Today marks the official disbandment of those squadrons. They've flown Nimrods from here since 1970, but the last government withdrew the planes from service early, nearly a year and a half ago. Then last October, with the upgrade programme cancelled, their days were numbered. The station commander here, Group Captain James Johnston, says today doesn't mark the end of RAF Kinloss yet, but it does mark the end of an important era. RAF Kinloss continues until the 1st of April 2013. But it is a significant day because um, you can't necessarily detach the flying from Kinloss and not perhaps believe that a part of Kinloss has died. What will be happening at Kinloss after the flying squadrons have been disbanded? Uh, We have a significant uh, drawdown programme uh, which involves really the rationalisation of the estate, the removal of materiel and most importantly, and I do stress most importantly, the onward posting of our personnel, be they servicemen or civil servants. In civilian life, people always assume if a company closes, mm-hmm. those are the people who go. That's, that's not how, how it works. It's not just because your, your squadron is going that you go, is it? No, absolutely. And there's a very sophisticated method that the service has devised for redundancy and also the civil service. And uh, we await the outcome of those deliberation boards. Um, but most importantly, and what I try and encourage all our personnel to do, is to look to the future and try and assess what the future means to them And what is it that we can do for the individual to ensure they have a future beyond RAF can loss? The 
future of Kinloss beyond 2013, that, that's not decided yet, is it, as a site, I mean? No, we await the outcome of the, uh, the defence basing review, uh, and we're not expecting that for certainly the next four to six weeks. But it, 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 it could be that, that there remains some kind of military presence in Kinloss beyond the end of RAF Kinloss. Uh, that's certainly an option. And so, as a programme director for the drawdown of RAF Kinloss, I discount nothing. Um, and I, you know, I wait um, optimistically um, for an outcome from the Defence Review. Not optimistically because I'm expecting um, something to come from it in an ulterior military use. Um, but more to the point is that we can move forward. Uh, and it's really getting decisions so that Kinos move forward and whatever the unit becomes, whether it's returned to a defence infrastructure organisation or it's used by another military organisation, uh, for me, what is most important is making sure our people are prepared for the future. And for you? What's the future for you? Uh, the f- future for me is a long way off. Um, I'm expecting to stay here until next year. Um, and indeed, I think it would be unreasonable me to, for me to focus on anything other than my people. There is one other big question for this area, some 10 miles along the coast. What will happen to RAF Lossimuth? You can't go very far here without seeing a car sticker or poster calling for the RAF to remain in Murray. A decision on that station's future is expected in a few weeks' time. James Hurst reporting. Well, let's return to that top story today. The news that Ratko Mladic, the head of the army, the Bosnian Serb army throughout the Bosnian war, has been arrested. Um, Christopher, your reflections on this news? I think we've got, it's, it's an example that when we go into a war, we say, right, that's the enemy, he's the bad guy, we're going to knock him out. We have to remember that that bad guy has got a lot of supporters. Mladic is a hero among his Bosni- Bosnian Serbs. And he has been a hero, and that's one of the reasons we haven't been able to catch up with him. Gaddafi has got guys in Libya who say, Gaddafi? Hero. We have to understand that before we ever go into warfare. Two men we will be following the futures of. Thank you very much for your time today, Christopher. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to everyone who's been on the programme. We're always keen to hear from you. To get in touch via email to sitrep at bfbs.com. Don't forget, you can go to our website as well. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye for now. This is Sitrep on BFBS.